This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, September 17, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. The non-delegation doctrine isn't quite dead, and the Supreme Court this term in the case of Department of Transportation versus Association of American Railroads had an opportunity to clarify what delegation really means. They didn't take it. Alexander Sasha Volek wrote the article detailing the case in the latest Cato Supreme Court review. We spoke today. So one thing that we see a lot in the modern-day administrative state is that agencies all over the place are writing rules. The EPA writes rules about environmental quality. The FDA writes rules. The FCC writes rules. That all looks like legislative activity. And so you might ask, well, how can that be constitutional? Is that constitutional? And um, the way that modern law handles this, it says that Article One of the Constitution defines Congress and the very first sentence says that legislative power is vested in Congress. And that's been interpreted to mean that Congress can never ever delegate any of its legislative power. Only Congress can use legislative power. And uh, so how can it be then that the EPA can write rules on environmental quality? Well, the way that modern law deals with this is that um, they're not really exercising legislative power because when Congress created the EPA and gave them power, they didn't just say, hey, EPA, make all of the good environmental rules you want. Instead, they said, EPA, you have to identify particular air pollutants. You have to regulate their tolerances by setting particular air concentrations with a sufficient margin for safety, et cetera. So actually, Congress had a greater or lesser degree of specificity about what the EPA is supposed to do. So when the EPA is writing rules, it's not just using its undisciplined discretion in the way that Congress could. Rather, they're, they're doing what Congress said. And that's the theory. The theory is that as long as Congress provides an intelligible principle for the agency to follow, then when the agency follows that principle, it's not exercising legislative power. So Congress has delegated power, but it has not delegated legislative power. So you wrote the article in the new Cato Institute Supreme Court Review on what you call the Amtrak case. What were the issues uh, under consideration by the court? The Amtrak statute in 1970 created Amtrak, which uh, its official name is the National Passenger Railroad Corporation. That word corporation is sort of key. There's kind of a question, is Amtrak public? Is it private? What is it? But um, at the time in 1970, Amtrak was this entity. Its function was to transport passengers and uh, the existing private railroads could offload to Amtrak um, their common carrier responsibilities to carry passengers and in exchange they had to do things like yield the right of way to Amtrak. Um, now much later, about 30, 40 years later, Congress decided, you know, Amtrak trains are not always on time and maybe some of the reason for that is that the private railroads are not always yielding the right of way when they're supposed to. So what we're going to do is we're going to develop metrics and standards for verifying the quality of passenger services, including the on-timeness and so on. And if those metrics and standards fall below a particular level, then that will trigger an investigation. The Surface Transportation Board will investigate, and maybe that'll be the basis for fining some of the private railroads for not yielding the right-of-way some of the time. So that this is a, a regulatory scheme for implementing the requirement to yield the right of way and other things. Now, how are those metrics and standards done? They're done by a delegation to 
Amtrak together with the Federal Railroad Agency. And uh, the Federal Railroad Agency is uh, clearly a government agency. That's fine. Um, but um, Amtrak and the Federal Railroad Agency together have to develop these metrics and standards which are going to end up having a regulatory effect. And uh, the Association of American Railroads said that that is not kosher because Amtrak has this joint regulatory power and Amtrak is actually private. And their view was Congress cannot delegate regulatory power, even with an intelligible principle, to a private party. If it's a public agency, then yeah, Congress can delegate with an intelligible principle, but their view was that there is a per se rule against delegation to private parties. And the DC Circuit bought this theory. They said, number one, Amtrak is private, and number two, that there is a per se rule against delegation to private parties. Um, now, both of those propositions are really questionable. It's not clear that Amtrak is private at all. It has many things that make it look like a public uh, entity. And in fact, for purposes of the First Amendment and other constitutional rights, Amtrak is already considered a state actor, so it has to obey the Constitution, which private parties generally don't. So that's questionable. And um, also the question, is there actually a per se rule against delegation to private parties? And I think the DC Circuit also got it very wrong there. The Supreme Court, in my reading, the Supreme Court has never struck down a delegation to private parties based on the non-delegation doctrine. In my view, I would go further. The Supreme Court has never even said anything that supports the idea that there is a stricter rule for delegations to private parties than to public agencies. And not only that, but on at least four occasions, and all four of those cases are still good law, the Supreme Court has actually upheld delegations to private parties under the non-delegation doctrine. So I think that the DC Circuit got it quite wrong uh, on both of those fronts. And that case came up to the Supreme Court. What the Supreme Court did is unfortunately, there are all of these interesting issues in the case about is there a special doctrine for private parties. The only reason that the, that the court would get to that is if it agreed that Amtrak was actually private. But instead, the court reversed the DC Circuit by saying actually the DC Circuit was wrong. Amtrak is a public agency after all. And so that means that the whole private non-delegation doctrine was off the table and they had no reason to even talk about it. So unfortunately, it was a very interesting case that had some fundamental issues about whether the non-delegation doctrine applies differently to private parties, but um, the Supreme Court resolved it on a fairly uninteresting ground and then sent it back for further litigation to the DC Circuit. So what are the more interesting grounds on which the court could have uh, made a decision? So what the court could have done is it could have said, we agree that Amtrak is private for purposes of the non-delegation doctrine, or they could have said, we'll assume for the moment that Amtrak is private for purposes of the non-delegation doctrine, and that would have allowed them to go on and say, even assuming that Amtrak is private, it makes no difference because there is no per se rule against delegation to private parties, that private parties and public agencies, it's the same rule about Congress delegating power to them. As long as Congress delegates with an intelligible principle, that is sufficient um, as far as the non-delegation doctrine is concerned. But we're still not out of the woods because my view is that 
the delegation of power to Amtrak violates a different clause of the Constitution. My view is that that delegation violates the due process clause because that's an entirely separate doctrine that says that you can't allow one person to regulate another person if they have a financial interest in the outcome of that regulation. And there again, it doesn't matter public or private, even public parties can have a financial interest in the outcome of regulation. Uh, so the due process clause is very general. It says that self-interested regulation is a no-no. And so I think the DC Circuit actually got it right for the wrong reason. They were right that the statute is invalid, but the reason is not the non-delegation doctrine. It's actually the due process clause because regulation is being given to a biased party. The Postal Service has argued that it's private in the past. I think it's probably a little uh, less questionable about, about that than, say, Amtrak. And you have an organization, the American Bar Association, which is charged with, which is a private organization that is charged with certain public responsibilities. Uh, how do we deal with, with those issues? So yeah, I think the uh, US Postal Service, I don't know exactly what arguments the Postal Service has made, and I haven't deeply looked into the structure of the Postal Service. The Postal Service probably seems pretty public to me, but I guess I would have to look into that. But I think the American Bar Association, that probably is a fully private organization. Now, some of these private organizations, especially state bar associations, they are a delegated power by state governments. Now, um, the non-delegation doctrine has no application to state governments and state delegations because, like I said, it's all focused on the text of Article One, which is legislative power is vested in Congress. It's only about Congress delegating power. And so state governments can do whatever they want. That's, of course, subject to other constitutional provisions, but not the non-delegation doctrine. Um, so I think that um, you know, for, for any kind of delegation to a private party, we'd have to sort of go through the US code and see what kinds there are. Uh, I don't think that those run into uh, that I don't think that those should run into any special problems because they're private but we might find that in many cases they're objectionable for other reasons because if the private party is regulating its competitors or if the private party is composed of incumbents in an industry and it's regulating potential entrance into the industry, then it's easy to see that that's a self-interested party and uh, they're going to be limiting people's liberty to enter the industry or whatever. Uh, they're going to be limiting people's liberty on self-interested grounds. And whether public or private, that has always been considered a due process violation. And I, and I mentioned those two groups because they do have regulatory power. I mean, the, the Postal Service regulates its competitors in a sense, and the Bar Association decides who gets to be lawyers. Yeah. I mean, in, at state levels, I understand that that's, it may not be, it does not a very neat example. Yeah. So, um, again, I would have to look into things. I actually do not know what regulatory power, if any, Congress has given the American Bar Association. I would have to look into that. Um, as far as the Postal Service, um, it's true that you can't compete with the Postal Service, but that's a statute that was passed by Congress. So that was not regulation that was created by the Postal Service. I see. Um, but uh, hypothetically, let's suppose, what if, um, what if the Postal Service was able to run its own administrative tribunal where it hauled you before that tribunal if you were accused of competing with the Postal Service? Or if it hauled you before that tribunal if you were accused of mail fraud and there was an administrative law judge in the US Postal Service? And if the Postal Service were in fact private, um, then, you know, that might very well violate due process. There's a 1973 case about exactly that called Gibson versus Berryhill, where 
um, it was a, um, a state pharmacist board. And the state pharmacist, it was is a question about self-employed pharmacists versus corporate employed pharmacists. And of course, the self-employed pharmacists wanted to protect their own industry and they didn't want pharmacists who work in like pharmacy departments of supermarkets or department stores competing with them. Uh, and so they they wanted to have a, an adjudicatory hearing where they disciplined a corporate employed pharmacist. But the whole board was composed of self-employed pharmacists. So that was a clear example where you had self-employed pharmacists that were using their own disciplinary power in their board to discipline their competitors, the corporate employed pharmacists. And the problem was not that there was a law against that because the legislature had done that. The problem was that the board itself wanted to run its own tribunal where it was going to discipline them in that tribunal rather than suing them in state court. So uh, that's a 1973 Supreme Court case and that's clearly about potential due process problems um, with self-interested regulation or self-interested adjudication. Justice Thomas in uh, his concurrence, he says as in your words, has now given us his full originalist view of delegation. So what, what, does he, what does he say in his concurrence and what do you make of it? Well, Justice Thomas is the only person on the Supreme Court who is really thinking boldly and originally about non-delegation issues. When this issue came up about 15 years ago, Justice Thomas concurred uh, and he wrote separately to say, um, you know, for years we've had this intelligible principle doctrine but the Constitution does not say intelligible principle. The Constitution just says that legislative power belongs with Congress. And I don't think the intelligible principle doctrine, he says, I don't think that that's necessarily enough to guard against delegations. It could be that Congress delegates with an intelligible principle but it's just still so important that it still looks like legislative power when an agency is. Uh, is exercising it. Uh, and he says, one day if a properly presented case comes up, I would, welcome the, uh, I would welcome the ability, I would welcome the opportunity to rethink this whole intelligible principle doctrine. Well, this was that case. Fifteen years later, the Amtrak case gives him the opportunity to give his whole theory. And his whole theory is the following. Whenever you have Congress delegating any discretion to anybody, the use of that discretion is a kind of lawmaking power. That's legislative power and that is unconstitutional. That is his basic view is that Congress can never delegate any discretion to somebody outside of Congress because when they use that discretion, that would be in essence legislation. That's his basic view. He also has a more minor view which is um, in particular he says, of course you can never delegate to private parties but that's for a somewhat different reason uh, which is that all power in government has to be either Article 1 says legislative power is vested in Congress. Article 2 says executive power is vested in the president. Article 3 says judicial power is vested in the courts. And all government power has to be one of those three, executive, legislative or judicial. So that means that Congress can also never delegate any power of any kind with or without discretion can never delegate any power outside of those three branches. So that for that reason also, they can't delegate to private parties. So that is a very big, very bold theory which would make most of the administrative state unconstitutional because we all know that it's very difficult or impossible to find a delegation which truly has no discretion attached to it. Now, is it correct? I'm not sure that it's correct. I think he does go too far. 
For example, a lot of federal statutes incorporate state law. The tax statute says that you pay different rates if you're married than if you're single. But how do we determine who's married? We refer to the state family law definition of marriage. That means that when a state alters its definition of marriage, then they alter the amount of money that the federal government is entitled to through your taxes. Also the Federal Tort Claims Act. If you sue the federal government for a tort that they have committed against you, generally speaking you lose because of sovereign immunity. But the Federal Tort Claims Act waives sovereign immunity in particular circumstances and then when that case is tried, we're going to apply state tort law. So if you get hit by a postal truck in Georgia, then you can litigate against the federal government based on Georgia tort law. So in other words, if Georgia changes its tort law, they change the extent of the federal government's waiver of its sovereign immunity. So there's a lot of discretion that is being delegated to states in currently existing federal law. And the states are neither the federal legislative branch, the federal executive branch, nor the federal judicial branch. And so it's hard for me to see how that would be valid unless you had some other ad hoc exception, which he didn't talk about. And But that can't be unconstitutional to do that. Also, just the very basic function of federal prosecution. When a prosecutor prosecutes you, it's because he it's because he has determined that your conduct fits into the elements of some federal crime. And so he finds a fact that you committed acts A, B, and C, which fall within the, the following elements X, Y, Z of this crime. So fact-finding, Justice Thomas had said, is fine as long as it doesn't involve discretion. But you and I know that always when a prosecutor determines that you have broken the law, there is going to be a substantial amount of discretion. You can't write a discretionless statute that way. And so it seems that this would really call into question fundamental executive powers which would have been fully accepted at the founding. And so even on originalist grounds, I'm not sure that Justice Thomas is right. There are other originalists who have different theories about how to um, more tightly police the non-delegation doctrine and I think that those might be more convincing. So I'm not going to get fully behind Justice Thomas's view, but I do give him credit for being the only person on the Supreme Court who is really thinking about what is the proper basis of the non-delegation doctrine and how to actually enforce this constitutional guarantee. Alexander Sasha Volok is a professor of law at Emory University and a blogger at the Volok Conspiracy. You can watch Cato's Constitution Day events at our website, cato.org.